0: Calling you from a from a different place. Wow.
1: I'm I'm also calling you or receiving your call from uh, not my usual place. So where are you? Well, I'm
0: at home, but the, oh, well,
1: the, I'm at work. That's weird. That
0: is weird. the The different place that I have today is um. I it's really a different computer. I have oh. I have a MacBook Pro now. Huh. And uh, so I'm, I've just spent the last uh, twenty five minutes uh, setting it up for the podcast with. The thought, the fear that when I called you, uh, my audio wouldn't work, your audio wouldn't work, um, I couldn't hear you, and it, but it all worked, and it was, uh, it's you know yet again, uh, Apple and Skype, a seamless uh, relationship.
1: <laughs> well, or, and I was going to say, um, you you know, you sounded different today, more more professional. Ooh, really? <laughs> that's that's fascinating.
0: Um. <laughs> I I uh I I must be uh I I am quite professional. Um I am wearing uh sweatpants and uh a, a top hat. A top hat <laughs> and a monocle. Like uh like the Monopoly guy. Nice. Oh, Don, it's uh, I feel like I haven't I mean it's been 2 weeks, but I feel like I haven't spoken with you in forever. Um there's I mean so much has happened. Also, I'm losing my voice. Oh no. Yeah. So uh, it makes for great podcasting but I've been um uh yelling a lot at hockey practice and games and um am and my, uh, my voice uh, the last two days it, it kind of it sounds sounds like it is now do, uh, do
1: you think those two things are connected or is that just simply uh, random as they could say
0: I I think they're connected I've um I think, <laughs> I think you're probably right I think they're connected I don't think it's random uh we uh, uh, in the ongoing chronicles of my uh, nine-year-old hockey team. We traveled to Wilmington, North Carolina this weekend, uh, and played two very hard-fought games against uh, a team that uh, I, I think I thought we were we were uh, better than, um, and we won one game seven to two, and then we lost uh, the second game three to two, and uh, there was a lot of yelling in the in the second game, but not not at the children, just at uh, really at the arena for, uh, uh tell sort of highlighting to them wh- what I was seeing on the ice. Um, but I don't, yeah, I, I I'm not a, uh, I don't yell at, at the children. I, I yell, Hey, watch the back door, right, which is a hockey right. term for, right. for right. there's a watching the back door. Understood.
1: Um, hey, so So after they won the first game, did they do any any crazy stuff like they, they flip over cars or climb up on lampposts or anything like no, that?
0: No, no one stole an ostrich or anything. <laughs> Nobody um, ate horse poop? No one ate horse poop. It was uh, – I mean we, uh, we, we, went, we went for dinner and went back to the hotel and went to bed and then woke up the next morning and, uh, and then played another game.
1: Maybe they should have done all that stuff and they might have won the second game. True,
0: true. I, I, it's absolutely. There's a lot of there's there's a lot of history that would show that they could have uh, maybe triumphed after that. Um,
1: I <laughs> you're going to say history that, that could have shown that they could have tried harder. Well, they, but you're you're no, you still look like a good coach, Ben. You don't you, you yell but not at the kids and uh, you don't blame them uh, too much when they lose, which I is don't. which is that's good.
0: I don't I don't. No, they they played they played really well. Um so we are Going into our second last weekend of uh, Jack's hockey uh, season um, this weekend. So we have uh, two more games here in Raleigh, and then we travel next weekend to uh, Charleston for a, a, our a final tournament and final games of the year. And, and that's, that's it. Then, then I get to sleep in on Saturdays. Sunday. wow
1: yeah. wow well you're a good dad i uh, that's uh that's good i uh, i would i would really be hard pressed to actually I slept in a little bit today I, the alarm went off, and I'm like, uh oh, i gotta go now, i gotta go now and then i i got ten more minutes and uh, and then look here we are starting uh almost ten minutes late more than ten minutes late so hey,
0: no problem uh, we uh you know sometimes uh i i also uh uh decided to to record from home today for that exact reason i was I may be a, like a decent dad when it comes to hockey, but this morning I was no help in the parenting um realm as Danny uh got both of the boys uh up made lunches and uh took them both to school and I was still in bed when she left uh so that it may you know may, i only there are only certain things I'm good at, and I guess yelling not at children is one of them um <laughs> uh, so yeah i get to i i'm uh, i I'm, I'm at home today. It, I have, um, yeah, i I've outfitted this, uh, MacBook pro with all the things that it needs, uh, to, to do our podcast. And by that, I mean, uh, Skype call recorder and the internet. Uh, and I, so I, we, you and I talked in person about this. I have not been super happy about, um, a whole situation with my MacBook adorable and not being able to connect it to a monitor, and I had this old MacBook Air, which I still have. But we had this project that was finished, and um, we were using a bunch of MacBook Pros to do some stuff in kitchens. And then for the next six or eight months, I don't need it, um, so I decided, oh, we'll turn it into a podcast machine, uh, and and I I like it. It's a little heavier. This I'm using the 13 inch non touchpad. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I'm just, you know, it's like, it's like that day when you get a new, a a new, new toy and you're just uh, trying it all out and and it kind of looks like your old toy, but it's a little bit faster.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really like, so I have the 15 inch. <clears throat> with uh the four ports and the touch bar and i i really like it i mean i don't the touch bar is like eh. you know my my reaction is fairly typical i think um i really like the uh the touch id on the on the 15 inch um macbook pro it, it it is very cool you get very get used to you really get used to touching your thumb um to to log in um although and then i also have it um Set up so that I can log in with my watch, so usually one of the two works so i don 't have to type uh, my password but yeah it 's uh it's it's a it's a good machine. I, I mean, a lot of people uh, have complained about it, but but I I do really like uh, I do really like mine, and I also like um, that I haven't had any keyboard problems. I know pe- people have had keyboard problems. I started to have a, a problem with my O key um, where it was like not re- responding, and uh, so I just like said, "Oh, that's not good," and I just like took my finger and I like whammed it up and down like ten times on the O key, and, and it seemed to fix the problem. So, yeah,
0: computers, huh? Am I on mute? Was I on mute? You're, up, you're on mute. No, yeah. I'm not on mute anymore. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, uh, between my MacBook Air and the keyboard on this, it, I actually like the feel of the Pro keyboard a little better. The, the, the keys are a little clickier. I, I do too. A lot of
1: people were complaining about it, but I I I started I started using it. I liked it right away, and then I I gave my old MacBook to a graduate student, and she needed some help with something, and so I went back and I typed on the old one. It's like, oh my god, this key is this key. These keys are like taffy. They feel yeah, disgusting. They're soft, yeah. right? Yeah yeah, 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 they're mushy. Oh, they're gross. So, uh, but I I yeah, I really like the I really like the keyboard. I mean, I don't like I don't like the fact that people are having complaints with the keyboard, um, but I really like the feel of the keyboard it's it 's really nice
0: it feels solid or something there's yeah yeah um, are do you use the the touch bar at all um, like other than for for uh, you know like are in your workflow does it do you use it I will use it for um,
1: I will use it for speaker control I will sometimes use it for brightness control um, Uh, occasionally it's, it's fun if I'm writing an email message on my Mac and I want to put an emoji in, uh, that's, that's nice to be able to do that. I mean, there's other ways I could do that, but yeah, sometimes I'll use it for pausing music. Uh, but yeah, not, not a lot. I mean, I, I appreciate why Apple did it. I also appreciate why people complain about it, but, um, yeah, it's, uh. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's not a real significant part of my workflow, but but I'm not uh, I'm not like super angry about it, like a lot of people right. seem to be.
0: Yeah, I'm I I am not interested in it. Like I I, I kind of like what I've what I've got now. What my, my favorite part is that I now can use my Thunderbolt um, displays. Displays, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> without like messing around and yeah. So um, yeah. yeah, so anyway, that's my. It, I I did have this scramble at. 845 this morning and you texted me at like 846. So I had this f- one minute scramble of, Oh damn, I totally forgot that I am you- going to use a different computer today. Uh, and, and so I started for a minute. Then you gave me an extra 15 minutes and I, uh, I got almost to, to where I needed to be, uh, coffee, um, sparkling water, uh, Skype downloaded, call recorder, downloaded, uh, settings in, uh, yeah. It, uh, it's, it's a good day.
1: Um uh, hey so uh breaking uh, breaking news um uh I just got a text message uh you 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 were for some reason were not copied on this text message um important question from Linda Harris sprout outbreak table does Barth still keep track question mark if so do you have a link question mark
0: I do how about uh I will uh, I'll take care of that so uh pe- okay. people are getting sick from sprouts since since the last time we talked right is that uh, is that true no no we did talk uh, about this we talked about sprouts last time
1: Yes, uh, so I'm. I'm uh, yes, Linda. Linda's asked me to ask you. Yes, I'm asking him now, Linda. Uh, ben will text you. It's coming. Yeah. So, all right. So, hey. So, while you're doing that, um, let me let me cover one uh, the one bit of listener feedback. And so, we've gone from having an episode, which was virtually all listener feedback, to uh, just one, which is fine, folks. You know, keep the feedback coming at whatever rate you want. Um, this is um. This is this is great. Um, so so this is from uh, Deep New England, a follow-up from Deep New England, uh, who says, uh, read my message, but not my name. Uh, in case you haven't figured it out, Deep New England is actually not her name. Um, she says, uh, thanks for all the questions that you answered for me last time. Fiddleheads do not taste like turds. Poor baby, <laughs> poor baby who misses out on this delectable treat. So, so there you go, Doug, you're a poor, whiny baby, but you'll never hear this because you don't listen. Um, uh, and then she goes on to say, um Much to my dismay, this week, I stumbled uh, across this closed facebook group. um It is called the no canning Police Food Group, uh, which is a food group, and there 's a link to it we will uh, we will link to this in show notes um it says and i i 'll read essentially from the whole thing here because its it 's fascinating um about this group a description this group has been designed for all canning methods and any preservation without necessarily feeling. The need to always, if ever, follow USDA or FDA guidelines. USDA guidelines are solely for the U.S. because, of course, we know that Clostridium botulinum is only a U.S. problem. Um, And we uh, that was my editorializing. Uh, That was not part of the description. Um, And if we have many members and we have many members from all over the world, they may not have access to all of the equipment that we do in the U.S. Therefore, hey, give yourselves botulism. Sorry, that's my my editorializing again. Um, Canning police will not be tolerated. Do not tell someone. That they are doing something unsafe, wrong, or that they are going to kill someone. Sorry, you're going to kill someone. Um, uh, you can give pointers about how a certain recipe has turned out for you when you did it a certain way. Hey, I made this and no one in my family died yet. Um, uh, sorry, there's a, there's a lot of editorializing going on here. Hopefully, people can figure out which are part, of, which is part of the description and which is part of my opinion. Um, we can talk about anything from the garden, farm, animals, f- from store to to the plate to the jar or plate also a rant room from other groups when things are going wrong if you have been added to the group and don't wish to be here we understand and we have no hard feelings drama is not allowed between each other in this group please respect everyone here wanna talk smack about another group or a post that's fine okay so <laughs> here's the thing you can apparently talk talk about people that are this now i feel justified ranting about right okay? cuz you were you um, were talking smack yeah. I'm talking smack. And, and by the way, um, uh, the, uh, no canning police, uh, you're not welcome on this podcast. Okay. So don't expect to come on as a guest because we won't have you on except if we do to make fun of you. Right. Um, okay. Uh, drama's not allowed. Uh, it's okay. You can talk smack about other people though. Just okay. Um, let's have fun, share and enjoy what we have been taught or have learned along the way. Just remember, be nice or just scroll on by oh my god um so anyway so this did you see you said see, see this when it came in did you uh I, did you join this group by any chance
0: i, I did not join this group I, I i looked at it i yeah i i well and the, I looked at the I would, description of the group
1: yeah i would like to and, and we'll link to it i would like to um uh, i would like to join it but then I, I feel like i couldn't i couldn't help myself so
0: uh, you know what i just I feel, and i
1: feel that we're in, in bad faith for me to join it and, uh, and oh my god it's a It is a heavy-duty group, Uh, 145 new posts today. Oh, my gosh. Uh, So it is a busy, busy group. I am. 25,000 members.
0: I'm attempting to join this group right now, and it gives you three questions. Question number one, we do not care for the drama and the USDA rules. Are you okay with this? Write an answer. (laughs) Question number two, do you eat bacon? We post photos of butchering animals. You can handle that question mark do you understand we are not just a canon group but a preserving group question mark write an answer why do you want to join this group please explain write an answer huh. <laughs> uh, wow i'm not going to be able to go through that right now but uh, well not on the podcast no. uh, but boy that that
1: i that's good you know i i uh, I, I like that I like that. I think I, w- I think I'm, I might try to join this group and answer honestly. Like, I think I could, if the rule of the group is the, the first rule of the group is you don't talk about the group. Like I could, uh, that's a fight club reference, um, which a movie I've never seen. Um, uh, but, but I could do that. Like if I understand it, if the rule is that you're not allowed to, uh, to talk about killing people with botulism, I could, I could follow that rule or at least I could, I yeah. could, you know, restrain myself. But, but the, what's the reason for joining the group? Cause I am fascinated at, at how at, at this this group of people that seems to be um, just awful, awful people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> OK, that's not what I'm writing. I'm going to write something like <laughs> I'm just interested in seeing what you're doing, which yeah. sounds creepier. Um, but yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, all right. No canning please. Thank you. Thank you. Deep New England. Oh, yeah. So not a lot of not a lot of feedback uh, or yeah, listener feedback this week, which, as as you said, hey, that's cool. Um, but there's stuff. There's stuff to talk about. Um, oh, there's
1: there's lots of stuff to talk about.
0: <sighs> so, I I guess the first thing I want to talk talk to you about is uh, something that's not in the uh, of course not in of course. Of course it's not in the files uh, at all. <laughs> what I want to talk to you about is something a text that I started with you uh, and uh, a couple of our food safety colleagues, um, and it, it is uh, I had a question of. What uh, what do you do with uh, leftover pizza that that's been left out oh, overnight? Yes, pizza. Yeah. So uh, here's where this where this came from. I had a call, uh, or an email, or a text, or a tweet, or something from uh, someone who I know at uh, um, who writes for Lifehacker, and uh, they ask you know the question of the day on your pizza's being left out, but it has been left out overnight. Um, you forgot about it it's in the box you know it's super bowl it's monday right the day after the big game and uh, you want to eat that pizza monday for lunch what is it safe is what do you do about it and so um you know they're, the, the 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 good folks at life hacker um who ask these questions are always really interested not just in like what does usda say or what are best practices but they want to they want to know about the science and so the um, the, uh, journalist of the piece, her name is, uh, Beth Swar- Swaricki and Beth and I had a conversation about this. And right after the conversation, when we, uh, talked about what I would do and how I would make my own risk assessments, I, uh, I thought, Hmm, who better to ask after the fact than mm-hmm. my, <laughs> my other good friends in the uh, food safety realm on, uh, on what they would do. So you tell me what you would do and then I will tell you, um, what I told Beth and then uh, I'll tell you what it says in the article sure well let me let me see if I can find
1: um, uh, let me see if I can find um, uh, what uh, what I said Um, so let's see Um, because
0: you had a good you had a very good answer yeah well
1: and uh, yeah. So let's see. Uh, right. So so we. So I have to explain. So all of this for me starts with Carl Bat, and and Carl Bat is a professor at Cornell University. Um, he actually got his PhD at Rutgers uh, with Mike Solberg, who was a faculty member here, who's since passed away, who's been kind of a mentor to me. Um, but I, I had some conversations with Carl really back in the 1990s, um, because he was an editor at the time, I think, for Food uh, Micro, uh, the journal. <clears throat> I, I This will give you an idea of how old I am and how long ago this conversation was. I actually submitted uh, the first ever electronic uh, email review of a, of a manuscript for Food Micro. This dates from the days when uh, journal editors used to mail out manuscripts to reviewers, and uh, and the reviewers would mail back their responses. I sent him my review review via electronic mail, which was a novelty at the time. But, uh, and he was teaching uh, the undergrad uh, food microbiology class at Cornell at the time, and he explained an, an experiment that he did with the class, because he was always looking for ways to engage the undergrads. And what they did was they would leave out pizza and beer overnight in the lab. I guess they would do a before test and an after test, and he and he, he would ask the students to predict like which which is going to be uh, you know grow more microorganisms overnight, and invariably um, the the beer was the one that would grow more microorganisms. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? It's got some alcohol in it, but again, if it's light beer, maybe not enough to preserve it. Um, uh, it's got plenty of nutrients, high water activity, pizza. Um, Lower water activity food the the crust is you know probably you know just like bread it's not gonna you know it's not gonna grow microorganisms overnight it might grow mold eventually um, cheese is low water activity uh pizza uh pizza sauce is acidic so um and ends up uh, at least according to what Carl said about. Uh, you know, how the results came out is is that it was um, uh, it was always the beer that showed higher counts uh, after it being incubated overnight. Um, This got me very interested in pizza. And so we have started we've always tested pizza um, at the university dining halls. Um, often, we, so we, we sample cold foods that are out of temperature control and hot foods that are out of temperature control and pizza we classify as a hot food um, and it is almost invariably out of temperature control um, and we test it in the lab routinely, and we hardly ever find high bacterial counts like right in line with what I was just saying, right in line with what Carl Bat found with his, um, uh, with his exper- laboratory experiments i 've actually got a graduate student. Um who is who's just in the process of uh, finishing up and writing her thesis, who's been actually analyzing all that data? She kind of came to my lab late in her graduate career and she needed a project. And so we gave her this project. She went and she so she took all the pizza samples that we had previously collected over the years and analyzed those, and then also took her own samples, and then on her own samples, she measured the pH and the water activity of the the bread part, the the cheese part, and and uh, I think. I don't I don't have it in front of me right now but anyway she separated the components measured pH measured water activity separated the components classified pizzas into plain cheese pizza meat pizza or pizza with vegetables and then kind of looked at the range of different possibilities in terms of pH and water activity, looked at where they fell um, in terms of uh, either the food code chart or some of the the chart from the IFT um, uh, potentially hazardous food uh, panel uh, uh, results uh, uh, manuscript and and, and kind of, you know, tried to tell a story around pizza. And the bottom line is really, although pizza may be a uh, time control for safety food, according to pH and water activity, it generally um, just does not have high counts, except for what we found was the, the, the types of pizza that have the, had high counts were typically pizzas made with vegetable top- toppings where those toppings were derived from fresh produce. Why? Because the fresh produce had high counts because that's, you know, fresh produce just has high counts. It comes from the natural environment. Um, uh, you know, didn't find any pathogens, didn't really find anything to be concerned about, except for high counts, again, mostly associated with um, those vegetable toppings. So, um, I guess, and my net answer for, for you on the, on the, on the, the, the text, uh, conversation was something like, um, personally, what I would do, um, is I, if I was really hungry, I would eat it. Um, but I wouldn't make it a best practice. Right. Um, and we do often have pizza for dinner. Uh, I will often put that pizza in the the fridge after you know a, a couple hours, and I will have it the next morning, um, uh, leftover and and not um uh, not reheated. I like cold pizza for breakfast uh, some mornings, and uh, it's it's delicious, and I haven't ever I haven't ever gotten sick from it. But I also uh, do put it in the frid- the refrigerator. As just because uh, I think it's a best practice, but but again, not probably not a high ri- not no risk, but not high risk. So that's 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 uh, that's that's my uh, very very long winded answer to your question.
0: So what? No, it's that that is great, and I would not say it's long winded at all. It's complete, um, and uh, I, um, I you share that with me in a much more succinct way on a text, uh, mm-hmm. and, which is essentially what I what I told Beth was um, you know. I would worry about water activity. You know that's what it what it comes down to me when I think about anything that I would be quote temperature abusing by leaving it out for four plus hours. And um, the water activity of a cheese pizza with baked cheese um, is, from what I can find on the internet, um, is pretty low. Um, it's like a focaccia style bread. Um, you can't get. You can't really um, guarantee without, you know, a water activity meter, but in the progression of lowest risk to higher risk, I, I, told her, um, you know, cheese to, uh, other, um, things that may dry out during the baking process, like a meat type pizza or something with, um, bacon would, would, you know, would be on a, the lower size to a higher risk left out overnight pizza would be something that has vegetables. And that, you know, I, I use the example of, um, you know, diced tomatoes that, um, probably aren't going to, um, you know, dry out enough, uh, and change that water activity. So that interface between those tomatoes and the cheese, you know, probably has enough, um, uh, enough, uh, water available for growth and especially for things that might be spore formers that, um, you know, that, that survive the baking process. Um, and so that's, you know, where it, it kind of sat, Um, so she, uh, I, I think the best, uh, best part of the, the article, um, uh, for me was, uh, she said, you know, pepperoni is fine. It's often sold at room temperature anyway, but what about green peppers? Yep. Buffalo yep. chicken, and I said they're fine if enough water got baked out of them. So how can you, your average home pizza eater know if that's the case? And she said, "Bad news. You you can't. You can't. Right, <laughs> which is true. Um, so, but I this is the you know the kind of stuff that I I really enjoy doing, um, and I think that this podcast has really helped with that because I I wouldn't you know I don't know maybe five years ago I give a much easier answer. To, um, to Beth, when she calls me that, oh, well, best practices is you, re- you should refrigerate it if, you know, after four hours and really it's not, <clears throat> it's not as simple as that. There's, there are a lot of things that, that go into this and, and what, um, you know, what this process talking with you every couple of weeks has helped me with is being better at following where, where are the hazards, and then what increases the risk and and you know it 's not as you said none of this is zero risk, but it 's pretty low risk in in my mind and and the other thing I highlighted to to Beth that that didn 't um, didn 't come out is you know we we do have a, a a pretty good history over the last twenty or so plus years of um you know even even longer but good epidemiology looking at illnesses, and this isn 't you know the I think the amount of times that this happens um, doesn't match real well with uh, how many illnesses we see from it.
1: yeah and, and I'm going from memory here not not looking this up on the internet, but I believe that we have had outbreaks um, from pizza, but those were commercially prepared frozen pizzas that I believe were were made with uh sausage uh that had 157 h seven that was that were not properly uh fermented uh to to control uh the microorganisms so yeah not not a lot of food poisoning outbreaks linked to uh linked to leftover pizza so um if it if it really was a problem, it would probably show up. Um, Um, Again, not 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 a guarantee. And it's not you know, that's that that statement is dangerously close to, well, I've been doing this way, doing it this way for years and I haven't made anybody sick. Um, But but that that information does need to be considered. And so we'll we'll certainly link to the um, Lifehacker article and then uh, we'll also link to the IFT article. Um, um, potentially hazardous foods document, um, and then also the uh, NACMIF challenge study document, which are both great. The NACMIF document talks about focaccia bread. That was one of the foods that FDA specifically wanted us to address, and um, uh, and, and again, uh, there's a lot of good discussion around this whole. Basically, what does it take for a food to be safe or or stable at room temperature? Um, so so take a look at those documents. That 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 wow, that potentially hazardous foods document is coming up on uh, uh, on in 2021. It'll be the 20th anniversary of that publication of that document. Man, do I feel old, but it's it's a good it's ah. a good good document. So,
0: yeah. Awesome. Hey, I have a dog barking. I'm not really sure it. why. So let me let me go. That. He's usually not very barky. I'll be right back. Okay. Okay. Sure. Okay. There's a mysterious reason for the dog bar- barking. He's still I, mysterious. Too. Still mm-hmm. mysterious. He, he's been outside now. He's, uh, he's now in my, in my podcasting realm. So he's, I think a little happier. I think he was, he gets a little bit upset. He's a bit needy when mm-hmm. someone's home and not paying attention to him. To him. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, the lovely Danielle is, uh, is volunteering at, uh, one of our children's schools. So, uh, so it's just me and me and the pop. Mm. So he's here. You may be able to hear him chewing a treat currently. Oh, nice. Uh, but maybe not. Uh, and I brought his bed up, so hopefully he'll just, uh, fall asleep while I, uh, while I talk to you. Um, yeah. So
1: we, we, speaking of dogs, we have a problem, um, with, uh, uh, with dogs, uh, barking in the middle of the night. So we've, we've got this terrible habit <clears throat> where we've let, uh, we let Bianca, um, who is little on the bed with us at night. Um, But that Gibbs wants to come on the bed with us at night. And so we have to close the door, but not until after Bianca has come up with us. Um, And so sometimes that's a problem if we fall asleep before she comes up. Um, and then, um, Gibbs has this habit. He doesn't do it every night, but many nights uh, he'll come up and he'll sort of sit in the bathroom next to the, next to our bedroom and kind of like bump into things and (laughs) shuffle around and generally make noise and make him make his presence known or sit outside the the door and, and whimper very lightly. And then, and then he'll hear something in the neighborhood that is very, you know, that he doesn't like, and he'll start off like barking like a lunatic. Right next to our bedroom door and then run downstairs to look out the window to see what it is that he's actually barking at. Um, And that's uh, that's disruptive to our sleep, uh, to say the least. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, that happened a couple of times last night.
0: Oh, dogs. Dogs are sometimes they're they're the worst. And then but most of the time they're not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and they can't—they can't help it. They're they just can.
1: dogs. But anyway,
0: they can. so I'm glad—I'm glad that your dog is—is—is—is—is uh, is,
1: is, is, is at least in a—in a—you uh, know, where where at least if he's barking, you can figure out what he's barking at.
0: Exactly, and uh, he's just—he's just extremely needy. And we were um, last night uh, at—we no one was home from about three p.m. until ten p.m. Um, so my, uh, younger son, Sam skated, uh, in between periods at the Carolina hurricanes hockey game. And so we you know went, went for dinner and went to the game and got home. And then since then, Stanley has not left somebody's side. Like, I think he had a little oh, yeah. separation anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a long time for a little dog. It is. It is. And he was, he's normally fine for a few hours, <laughs> but, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know who knows. Um, so, so yeah. Um, I also what was I going to tell you about? Um oh oh you posted something. You took a picture of mine from the from the Facebook uh uh-huh. uh or from from Twitter or something about donut eating.
1: Yeah, so wanted- that's from that's from your Facebook feed. Uh it's the the the, the, the I entitled the JPEG Let's Eat Those Donuts. <laughs> Uh, which is uh, so you so you posted something saying uh, and it's a it's a picture of uh, first frame is somebody puked yes. and the second frame is an empty box of donuts and your comment was my empty box not my puke <laughs> and then uh, and then your comment on your own post was like they say in donuts let's eat those donuts <laughs> so this was uh, I think some sort of a running race where you have to run and then you have to eat donuts
0: it, it was in fact it is uh, called the Krispy Kreme challenge it has uh, been happening at NC State uh, for 10 plus years. Uh, this actually last year, I think might've been their 10th anniversary. Um, it started with uh, some uh, running uh, you know, student athletes who um, decided that they would uh, you know, in the off season do this thing where they would run from campus uh, to downtown Raleigh to um, one of the original Krispy Kreme donut uh, outlets. Um, and, uh, buy some donuts, eat a dozen and then run back. And it has grown to, I I don't know, like how exactly how many people, but I want to say like 8,000 or so people ran this on Saturday. Um, so it's, it's a two, it's a five mile run total. And so I've, this is the third time that I've competed in this, uh, in this competition and it is definitely a competition. Um, and it is the third time that I have uh, finished. Um, I have eaten the twelve donuts um, uh, every time. Uh, this time, I was much slower at my donut eating than I had been in, in previous years. So the the goal is to complete this challenge um, in in an hour, and I did it in one hour and three minutes. And I blame my uh, thirteen minutes of donut eating. Yeah, on, uh, yeah, no kidding. So I I. Um, <clears throat>
1: I do, I I do not like donuts. I do not like running. Um, This seems like it would be a lot of fun to watch. and and I do occasionally enjoy a donut or and and seldom two because that would just be you know you know that would be just an a excessive amount of donuts um but uh but I can understand why people like this and it's I, so we'll link to the uh, we'll link to the website um it's the the website is beautiful i mean it's got a great a great picture of a whole bunch of dudes uh and they they all do appear to be dudes um uh, in costume that are uh getting ready to run uh run this race and it's uh, it looks like a fun time
0: it was it was very cool um and I was I did it uh, as part of uh, training for a uh, 200 mile r- uh, relay race that I'm running uh, at the end of March from uh, Columbia, South Carolina to Charleston, South Carolina. Um, wow! How much do you of that do you have to run? I will be running 14.4 of those miles. So, wow! Yeah, so it's a 12 person team, and everyone's so somewhere in this like 13 to 18 mile range. Um, and so we do. Um, we do it in legs. So I'm I'm kind of excited. We leave. Uh, I, I, we start the race at about 5 a.m. on a Friday morning, and we complete it around 2 p.m. on Saturday. And just uh, you know, run. Um, you know, these some. I guess the longest leg is an 11 mile run, which I'm not capable of running. Uh, and the shortest leg is a two and a half mile run, and uh, it it goes through all these little towns uh, on the on the way to Charleston.
1: How long did you say your leg was?
0: Uh, I have I have three legs. One is oh okay. Yeah. One is six miles or just under six miles. Another one is uh, the other two are like four and a half and three and a half or something like oh, that.
1: okay, because uh, you gave me a number that was like greater than eleven. Right, and you said you couldn't run eleven. Okay, I see. So, yeah. so now, so does that mean that you are like somebody has to run in the middle of the night with yeah. this, right?
0: Yeah, I'll I'll absolutely be running uh, in the middle of the night. So uh, part and, of the.
1: And so you have to have, like, people to help you and drive you in a car to get you to the handoff point, right? Yes.
0: Yes. Oh, so, wow. So there's a lot of logistics. Uh, what's, this,
1: what's this called?
0: It is called the Palmetto 200. And uh, it is um, – so we uh, – our team uh, – and so it's a whole bunch of hockey parents because it's re- really – hockey parents are the only people I know. Um <laughs> Clearly, food, it's okay. I understand how that goes. Food safety people and hockey, hockey parents. It yep. makes up yep. my entire life. Uh, and uh, so we, we split our, our team into two vans. And so um, each van will run a six-leg um, portion. And then the other van will drive ahead and we will grill and we'll have hammocks so we can sleep and, and rest. Uh, and then we you know, leapfrog the other van as, as we go to our our next leg uh, – our next set of legs. But, yeah, I'll be running um, – right now it's estimated that I'll be running a leg from uh, 2.15 a.m. until about 3 a.m. So we have – and it's it looks like I'll, I'll be in a very rural area. So I, what I haven't done and I really haven't prepared for and everything that I've kind of read about this is something that um, is, is hard to get used to is I'll be running – you know, almost four miles in, in pitch black, like no, the, you know, three o'clock in the morning, it's unlikely that any cars are going to be coming by. Um, I'll have you know reflectors and I'll have a, a, either a belt light or a headlight and probably a flashlight in my hand. Um, but, but other than that, it's, you know, it's just pitch black. And so I, 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 I gather that, you lose your perspective on how fast you're going and and where you're going because you can't see much. So I'm going to do a couple of training runs um, in the next month here in um, on some paved trails that are uh, off the road and just get a sense of what that's like. But, yeah. So I, anyway, it's, uh, these are – uh, Don, you you were uh, you were forty once. You can uh, remember uh, those years. I I turned 40, <laughs> <laughs> turned forty, this year, and I was thinking, what are the, like what, what kind of experiences? You know, if an opportunity comes up, should I just go and check out? And so this is uh, this is what I've been doing. i was, uh getting ready for this uh, for this fascinating. Run.
1: So this makes, me, this makes me think we should get to the food safety talk eventually, but this makes me think very much of a documentary which uh, Merlin was talking about recently, uh, the Barkley Marathons. Um, have you heard of this documentary? No,
0: no, I haven't
1: well I will right, we'll, I'll link to it in show notes I won't spoil it for you we won't talk about it but um, yeah it's um, it it's it, th- th- so this th- what what you're doing with the Palmetto is not uh, if one person did it I guess it would be an ultra marathon right. uh, but the Barkley marathons are really about this uh, about this ultra marathon and I, again we won't spoil it for people um, I it's on my list of things to watch um, I will get to it. But I have been, I've been not, I've been realizing that I've got an opportunity coming up where I can probably catch up on all of my TV watching because it's going to almost be the winter Olympics. And then, and during the winter Olympics, the, the only thing that's on our television is is the winter Olympics. Olympics. <laughs> yes, And then, and Kristen has to keep watching because she doesn't want to get spoiled, um, for anything. And so it's pretty much a nonstop, uh, marathon of, uh, of TV watching. And so, and that's fine. I, I like the Olympics, but, um, it's also a good time I've discovered lately. Um, I've been, i taken my, I haven't been traveling, but I wanted to watch, uh, Patriot. And so I, I've been taking my Patriot watching while she was watching some, some skating stuff that was, uh, in the, in the run up to the Olympics. So I think that's going to be a, my MO is uh, I'll just watch, uh, Netflix, uh, or Amazon stuff on my, um, on my iPad while, while she watches, uh, sports. So, well, yeah. good.
0: I have, so uh, we will get to food safety again at some point, but I have one more recommendation for you to to watch. Sure. Um, sure. The There is a uh, documentary that came out last week, uh, and it's an HBO documentary called May It Last, and it's on the Avet Brothers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, North Carolina's uh, favorite sons uh, when it comes to, um, all, I don't know what the classification, but roots, country, alt-rock. Yeah. Uh, and they're one of my favorite bands, uh, and the documentary is just wonderful, just a beautiful – um, it's, it was uh, directed, uh, co-directed by Judd Apatow from you know, Girls and 40-Year-Old Virgin and all the comedy things. But um, it, it is – I, I loved this band before. I didn't know a whole lot about them. And then watching this documentary made me, wa- like, love them even more. So you should watch that as well.
1: Yeah. You know, I, when they sort of came on the scene, I, I heard, listened to their music and I really liked it, but I don't as I've explained before on the podcast, I really don't, really don't listen to music that much anymore. Pretty much all of my listening time, my dog walking time, my commuting time is spent listening to podcasts, to, to spoken word stuff. Um, but, um, so I don't listen to music, but, but yeah, they, they, uh, they do, uh, uh, they, they, they are, they are good. And I have definitely, I think I own even own some of their music. And so, yeah, very, uh, very much appreciate the
0: recommendation. Cool, cool, cool um all right, back to foods back to the food safety talk now, yeah, uh, um Don, did you know that uh your HelloFresh uh meal kits in Canada might have uh, some sesame seeds in them that have salmonella? I think I heard something about this, yeah, so i i this one i you know caught my eye of um things that I wanted to talk about because you know you and I have both talked a, a little bit about having our um you know using meal kits uh. I don't know if you're still subscribing to Blue Apron. We are. No, Um, we're not. We're not because,
1: you know, it it was it was great, but it was just too much pressure. And Kristen, it was too constraining. So Kristen is the primary meal preparer. And, um, you know, it was good. It was fun. But, um, you know, it just was wasn't working for us. um, So we we did cancel it. Um, It's you know, it's a it's a it's a lot of packaging.
0: It i mean is. i'm we're I'm still
1: trying to find ways to get rid of the freezer packs that are sent with the with the food, and so it's a lot of packaging so yeah
0: it's it is a lot of packaging um the uh there's a lot of recycling potential for that packaging, which makes me feel a little bit well, better yeah yeah, it all gets it all gets yeah. recycled.
1: That's that's fine. Uh, we we put out tons of recycling. Um, uh, we're I mean not to brag, but we're probably the best recyclers in the neighborhood. I mean we do way better than the neighbors.
0: That sounds like. It's, um, <laughs> it's, but, I'm the I'm the, least, I'm the best recycler you'll ever meet. Is, this, is what, it sounds it sounds very uh, twittery uh, political uh, without uh, yeah know. yeah. Um, <laughs> But, uh, uh, yeah, but, but, um, uh,
1: but, but the, but the, but the freezer packs, man, I don't, I yeah. just were Those are just going to a landfill somewhere. Right. I mean, I yeah. filled up, I filled up the freezer our downstairs chest freezer with them until Kristen said, look, we can't do this. We have to get rid of these. And I'm like, but it's good. If the power goes out, it, it takes side. up space. It keeps it yeah. cold. But uh, she didn't subscribe to that, uh, argument. So, so we're just getting rid of it. Um, yeah, it's, um, yeah. Anyway, so we're, we we do not do it anymore. I'm glad to see that you're still doing it. Um, you know, someday they may sponsor this podcast if we ever have uh, podcast sponsors. So,
0: well, um, yeah, yeah but let's, let's talk about, the yeah. So, I mean, two, two things, uh, just a circle back around on, on this one is, um, you, when we did talk about meal kits, we, we did talk a little bit about this, this idea of what happens, um, during a recall and how, you know, how, uh, fortunately, um, you know my blue apron folks have my my contact info so they could let me know about it i i'm kind of interested that this all came out like in the news so i don't know if it was actual you know if if hellofresh contacted their um their customers um or you know or not oh, and but- i just
1: i just i just want to say also i have no knowledge of hellofresh it's blue apron that we subscribe right. to that we no longer subscribe to so i i was confused there. There's so many of these companies out there. Uh, I apologize.
0: Yeah, no, but they're all like, they're all kind of the same, right? Like it's, it's, yeah, there's like
1: blue apron, there's like purple onion or something, right? Isn't there one another with a color name in it? Anyway,
0: probably. Um, so, but the, the other experience that we've had with them is it's twice our, um, blue apron boxes in the last month has been delayed because of snow. Um, Oh, yeah, because we had these two snowstorms and no one was moving anything in in North Carolina. And so, um, you know, I would get my notification on a Tuesday that my Blue Apron box had shipped. And, uh, you know, the snow came on Wednesday. So I know that they didn't hold it somewhere. Um, And got these, like, really, you know, quite nice messages saying, hey, we we have technology in your box, in which that technology is ice, um, or an ice pack, that will keep this product cold. um, And, you know, it should be of the highest uh, quality when it gets to you. And it didn't tell me anything about, like, go ahead and check the temperature of it. But I did both times. we, We usually get our Blue Apron box arriving sometime on... Um, Friday and but in both cases it got to us by the end of the day on Saturday so one extra day and sure sure enough Don, both times I te- checked the temperatures of all the TCS foods that were in there and uh, everything was well below 41 degrees I mean meat was the last time I looked at um, the you know this uh, the chicken that we had it was at 34. So it's it, it all it all kind of it all kind of worked. So I well and and when
1: they say technology, does does do you think that that might also mean that they have like a like because when we did Blue Apron, it wasn't delivered by a typical carrier. It was delivered by somebody who who was just like in a in a van, right? Like a contract delivery company. Might they have a satellite location where they just throw all of this stuff into a refrigerator?
0: Entirely possible. Um, yeah. Our stuff comes by UPS. So, okay. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, maybe, maybe they divert things. Um, so in case stuff like this happens, because, you know, a little, a little bit of snow in North Carolina, it, they, they must really be de- dealing with this across the U S every week, right. Where there's some delay mm-hmm. um, in, in shipping. So I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know, but I, it, whatever um, by the time it got to me, it was still at, at a, at a good temperature. Um, which, which kind of surprised me both times, like we're, uh, and it was, I mean, it was a little bit cold out outside, but I, you know, so I didn't get the sense that my box was sitting in, in some van somewhere, but, um, maybe, you know, maybe it was, but by the time it got to me, it was cold. So cool. Yeah. Um, ooh, I want, so I'm interested in something here, Don, I want you, uh, you sure put a couple of things in, uh, the, um, uh, in our super, super secret Dropbox file, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> about swine slaughter and yeah. yes, so, yeah, so, um, so g- give me the, give me the setup here. I know that there's, there's been some, uh, conversation in the last week about, um, a, a proposed rule to, uh, change how, uh, pork slaughter inspection happens. Um, and it's in fact, the modernization of swine slaughter inspection, uh and uh so talk, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about this
1: <laughs> yeah sure so so basically i was uh i was contacted uh by uh somebody who let's call him deep meat okay <laughs> <laughs> who who may or may not who who may or may not work in washington dc and and I and so I was contacted by him outside of normal channels, okay? Uh via uh, uh, some uh, messaging platform that's uh related to social media, okay? And and the message I get from him is let me know and if you have a perverse interest in the dark underbelly of FSIS rulemaking. So sad, exclamation <laughs> mark. <laughs> okay. Um, my response is I'm in laws, sausages, and rulemaking. Um, uh, and then he says you can give me a call at work. Uh, and and basically, the idea is, and I don't know, I I don't I guess he 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 knows I'm interested in this stuff. Um, and, um, and I don't know if it was I don't I don't post I don't post post too much political stuff online. Um, there's like a a a, a private uh, group, Facebook group that a friend of mine from college has started. And I put most of my ranting and, and stuff there. Cause you know, I just, I, you know, whatever. I, I don't, I don't feel the need to rant about that too much in public. Um, and, and so basically, uh, what he did was, so he's, uh, so again, he's, a, again, I don't, I don't want to triangulate his position too, too much, but, um, he, uh, is interested in me, and he's interested in, in risk assessment. And he said, look, I want to send you a couple of links of some things I want to talk to you about. And he sent me uh, one document, which is entitled, which we will also link to, um, Assessment of the Potential Change in Human Risk of Salmonella Illnesses Modernizing Inspection of Market Hog Slaughterist. And this is a risk assessment that came out in uh, January of 2018. 18, although it's been in the works um, for for quite some time. Um, and basically, in this uh, this document, and my 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 colleague was not an author of this document, but he's familiar with the document. Um, and I have to say too, I am I am not um, I did not re- I guess the document maybe has gone out for peer review, maybe not. Um, I was not part of the peer review, but I I I was part of a similar. Document, which is talking about the um, uh, potential of uh, change in inspection for poultry slaughter, and so the FSIS came out with a similar risk assessment um, for for poultry slaughter, which I did review. And the and the basic the basic idea for all of this is modernization of um, of slaughter. You, there's a wonderful Gary Larson cartoon uh, entitled Early Microbiologists. And, and in this Gary Larson cartoon, it shows a bunch of guys dressed in animal skins in a cave, and they are microbiologists, but of course they don't have microscopes. And so they are peering at petri plates that appear to have nothing on them, right? And so the idea is that this, um, uh, this is the mode of inspection that FSIS inspectors operate in. They can't see microorganisms. And yet now FSIS is charged with the oversight of the microbiological of the food supply. And so these inspectors don't have superpowers. They cannot see these microorganisms. And so the question is, what can we do? Because we now we know that foodborne disease is caused by microorganisms. We know that, that there's ways of controlling that. We have HACCP and we have we have technologies. And so we we also know that there's an incredible and this is this is an aside right because FSIS doesn't care about USDA but but we know that the the level of inspection in a, a meat and poultry plant is orders of ma- or orders of magnitude or an order of magnitude different than um, at least one order of magnitude different than, than in an FDA plant because FDA inspectors come periodically. USDA inspectors are there all the time. Um, so the level of inspection resources relative to those two components of our food supply are dramatically different. And so the idea is, well, what if we change? We, we're not going to change the number of inspectors because there's an inspector's union and there's all sorts of problems with doing that. But what if we change what those inspectors did? Because we know that they can't see microorganisms. And so what if we could Change the allocation of resources of those inspectors in such a way that they would do um, do a different do different jobs in that, in that facility. And again, this is a multi multi page risk assessment with many many tables. Uh, the table that I want to to call your attention to, uh, which was which was brought to my attention by by my my colleague, is uh, it's it's two tables. Um, let me. Sorry, I'm working from a couple of different documents here. Um, uh, Tables 13 and 14 on page 56. So uh, those two tables um, basically uh, talk about the... um, uh, the estimated illness reduction from some different scenarios and and the scenarios have to do with what those inspectors are doing so are the are those inspectors uh performing scheduled and performed procedures? are they doing schedules and not perform procedures? are they looking at unscheduled procedures and, and again i don 't have time to go in and explain uh, everything here, but the idea is that basically you could uh, reallocate those what those inspectors are doing and look at and see what that what effect that that would have on food safety and and the point that my colleague was making which is kind of a it's a nuanced risk assessment point but the basic idea is that there's a, a rather significant flaw in the risk assessment in that by simply generating more random numbers, they cause the variability of the number to go down. And in this case, um, it's the probability that we'll have an increased number of illnesses by changing these inspection Resources and what he was hot under the collar about, and it's kind of a fine, rather fine point um, um, uh, from a risk assessment perspective, is essentially what these risk assessors did is they they did something that was not that was not correct that was not kosher from, from. from a risk assessment perspective. In other words, they they simply ran more simulations using random numbers and they caused the variability to go down and from that they concluded that, well, this particular set of actions would have a negligible effect on uh, increase in illnesses. and and he's just not convinced that that's a legitimate uh, argument in terms of the math. Okay, and so so that's that's one that's one piece is this risk assessment. The other piece is uh, this brand so new rule me, that came out. Oh, me, go ahead. Let me yeah, jump in there. Jump in.
0: Yeah, I just wanna I just wanna clarify to make sure I'm, you know, I you I understand. So by look you know looking at these at these tables, it has to do with the number of sample days that they that they ran through the model and so they used 2300 sample days 2330 with one and then 22631 with with table you know table 14 and the random number aspect is what led to the conclusion that the probability of increased illnesses was at 4% for the more sample days compared to twenty percent for the last sample days. And so that that became justification of saying over over time, you know, the more sample days that we have really we're we're closer to negligible change as opposed to twenty percent. Is that am I getting it correct? That yes, that 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 is that is exactly
1: that is exactly right. And so and and, and it's not if you and this is a, this is a normal thing. Like if you have some uncertainty around a particular parameter, and you run more simulations, just run the computer for longer. Like you run it for for ten times more. Right? Uh, you run it at an order of magnitude more. You're gonna shrink that um that variability around that number and, and it's it's not necessarily a legitimate thing to do right it's kind of an artifact of the modeling methodology
0: gotcha okay so 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 if so it th- went out go ahead. yeah like if it went out another like or two magnitudes more right like it would just get closer and uh, closer to zero I, I,
1: and and we don't know without running it. It may gotcha. it may reach a certain point where it won't get any smaller, but but the fact that they did this is not really it's not really legit, right? Because gotcha. it's not it's not the data are not independent. Okay. Cool. And cool. so and, and right. And so and so this risk assessment was being done um and then um basically some proposed rules just came out based on nominally based on this risk assessment. Okay. Now it's important to get the timeline right. So all of this original risk assessment happened under the previous administration, um, which was, uh, well, it was different than the current administration. Let's just say that. Okay. But, um, but it was, but, but there was still, I, I guess my, my, my colleague's point is that Everybody in politics is evil. Right. It's not just the current administration. And I and I, and I get his, his argument there. It's like, well, we can. Yes, the, the the proposed rule came out under the current administration, which lefty 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 liberals in academia love to hate. But but the previous administration, which is more in line with our values, was also maybe, you know, had some you know had some bad stuff go on in it and and were and was trying to do things that might have undermined public health i guess is to put to put a try to put a rather fine point on it and then the third the third piece here is that the former US Department of Agriculture Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety um um basically uh left his job towards the end of the last administration to take a job running food safety and quality assurance for a giant meat company so I mean, you know, again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. This is something that happens. Um, people move from industry to government and then back again. Um, but my my the point of my colleague, I guess, is that, um, you know, no one is no one is without blame and there's evil on on both sides.
0: Yeah. OK,
1: so that's that's kind it, of a bummer.
0: Yeah, well, and that uh, I mean, it, <laughs> it's kind of, kind of a bummer Um and the, I mean, I think the the third layer that I'd add on, on to that is that there are there are good people there. That yeah, you know, we have lots we have lots of great colleagues in the in the federal government, um, and yeah, and, and in the industry, and in the industry, um, and a, and a, f- a few in academia. Right, right, right. But but that the system itself also adds to to the um, ex- the, you 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 can manipulate the system. Uh, in lots of different ways. Um right. And yeah. and and in and
1: related related to another story in the news um which which I have uh, entitled um uh, uh Gorney straight, straight shooter, shooter respected <laughs> by brides um uh which is a nod to a different podcast. Um uh that Jim Gorney who was in industry and then at FDA then went back to industry has gone back to FDA once again. And so this is a permeable Barrier, uh, and I think it's a good thing. And and Jim, and Jim's. I mean, I don't know Alamansa, but Jim Gorney's a good guy, right? Like I, a lot of respect for Jim when he worked for the industry. Equal amount of respect for him when he worked for FDA, and then and then at both those places again. And so, I mean, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. That that Jim is uh, is back at the A. Um, I, I would love to catch up with him over a beer and find out if there was some specific thing that that caused this to transpire. But but it's it's good. Right. We need good, smart people. And Jim, in particular, is a guy who I think came to food safety risk assessment as an outsider with kind of some suspicion. And then the more that he learned about it, the more he realized that, uh, hey, you know, this is, actually, um, this is actually a good thing. And I, I believe it. I'm, I'm a believer now in risk assessment and risk based decision making. And, and really, you know, reached out to me. And, and we've had some great conversations about it. So, so Jim's a good guy. And I'm happy that he's part of the team, whichever team he's part of.
0: Well, yeah. And this, I mean, this is a, a bigger philosophical question. Um, which is, which is what we're all about at food safety talk, but it, it, it's that, you know, you can't, you can't expect a person who has interest in, in a particular field to exist only in one of the paradigms that we've kind of established, um, you know, through the food safety professional world, right? Like we have academia, we have industry and we have, um, uh, regulatory or, or government individuals, and there are just times when there is a draw for, um, you know, a, a career change to one of those other ones from the one that you're in because of the challenges that that uh, field provides. And I don't, I mean, I, I don't look, I, I, it does drive me crazy a little bit to, to look at, well, this person is an academic and you know, that, that, then they all, they'll always be an academic moving into one of those other two fields and vice versa. So I, you know, we, we need good smart people who have a value in science in all those areas. And if people move around, then that's, you know, that's great. They bring those experiences um, to, to those positions. And this, this conversation, this philosophical bit, um, connects to something that you, something else that you you'd uh, put together um, for our notes file, which is um, something from the American Council on Science and Health uh, that was written by um, Alex uh, Berzow on is P- a PhD still useful to society? And it's kind of like to me a, a similar conversation. And so Alex um, puts together. Uh, an argument that the the idea of a phd in science is really just to train individuals in the um in the same mold as as their advisor right to to make more academics um and you know the there is something to that to that conversation but um i i, I don't know to me uh, it, it there there are no Training grounds in in any academic setting that gets anybody ready for their for their next um, fully ready for their next job, right? Like the the training that I had in my PhD was phenomenal and and great on the the area of um, you know topic area of food safety and how to critically think through a a, a problem, but it, it didn't give me and and it, I don't I wouldn't expect it to give me the ability to manage grants and to navigate um donor fundraising uh initiatives like like I like I do now or manage you know multiple projects at at one time as you know it wasn't about pro- project management um and so uh, you know, there we all come with these different skills and these different um experiences from from schooling and then we pick up experiences along the way in other, in other jobs that we bring to food safety problems. And, and so I, I, you know, I don't, I know, I know Jim a little bit. I don't know him super well. It doesn't bother me that people move back and forth because where, you know, where he's going, they might need They need someone with his skill set, right? Like it's not just about, it's not just about him. Um, And, and I, I don't know. I don't know if you look at it the same way um, when you're, training your masters and PhD students, but I am I'm trying to get them ready to for opportunities, not for a career. Does that does that make sense? Yeah. Like does yeah. that and- yeah.
1: Yeah, and the reason why I put this this uh, American Council on Science and Health article in there is that this is—I mean—I think this is—you uh, know—to to quote uh, Betteridge or to quote Betteridge's law—the uh, answer to this headline is not no; it is yes. A PhD is absolutely still useful to, to society, and what I try to tell my graduate students is. What I am teaching you to do is to think, and I'm teaching you how to teach yourself something, right? And once you learn that you can become an expert in whatever you set your mind to becoming an expert in, you can do that. As I again, as I tell my students, at the end of your PhD, you should be the expert on whatever your PhD is on, and you should know more about that than than anybody in the world. Now, what you won't do is you won't know more than your entire committee, right? And that's the purpose of the committee, but you should really be the world expert on that thing that you, that you have just, that you have just studied. And, you know, and and sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't, but I, I strongly disagree with what Alex uh, lays out um, in this article, I, I, and I think in terms of food science, absolutely we need PhDs in food science because we need them in academia, but more, much more, we need them in industry and we need them in in government. Um, and and I'm thinking about this too from from the perspective of of even even just jobs in academia, right? Nothing about getting my PhD. Really trained me to be graduate program director, right? How I'm figuring out by graduate, how how do I learn how to be graduate program director? Well, I collect data, I think, I go to meetings, I try to figure stuff out, I try, you know, I try. Like for example, this semester, we 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 tried an experiment, we we changed our admission deadline to see if that would improve the quality of candidates, right? And it didn't it hurt the quality of candidates, and it let us give us more time to make a decision that would hopefully allow us to tr- attract some excellent students with With some funding, um, and we also did an experiment this semester where we admitted fewer students to try to to raise the overall caliber to lower the number of students in our program, but more importantly to raise the caliber of the students that are in the program um, and that's an experiment and we'll see how that experiment plays out but you know and your and you know your comment about fundraising like that's all a university president does is fundraising, and yet uh, their whole career is built on the fact that they are advancing themselves scientifically. Right. Um, and, and at some point they're gonna, they're gonna become a professional fundraiser. That seems crazy to me. Right. Like right. really what we want is we, we want somebody who's really good at fundraising in that position, not necessarily somebody who's a PhD, but that's just the way that things, things work in academia. Um, but I guess again, the bottom line is, yeah, I mean this, I, I disagree. Um, uh, uh, I, I agree that a Ph.D. is still useful to society. and I'm really proud of the fact that in food science, we are training people for jobs that actually exist. Right. And and that maybe the solution is for programs that only train Ph.D.s to go into other academic positions. They I would have I would have a. I would have a real I would have real angst if I was in a program like that that was training people for jobs that didn't exist or condemning them to a life of postdocs. That's 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 horrible, right? Um, And maybe it's a little bit you know uh, shame on them and a little bit shame on people who are following those degree programs. Um, But you know ultimately you should be thinking about what it is that you're going to do after you get your PhD. It's not about just getting the PhD. It's about what you want to do after. And thankfully, in food science, um, there's lots of jobs. And there's jobs for people with BS degrees. There's jobs for people with MS degrees. And there's jobs for people with PhD degrees. And and overwhelmingly, they are not in academia.
0: Right, right. And um, one of the things that, that Doug, who doesn't listen to the podcast, uh, always sort of talked about when it came to the the PhD path was well it it gets you in the club and and I I think an, an er, earlier early on I thought that was like into the club of the like elite people with a PhD you know whatever I I don't think I fully understood what what he meant by that until more recently and it was it it gets you into the club of someone has, has, uh, put you, push you through a process of becoming an an independent critical thinker, right? Like it's, and to your, to your point of the the assumption, this individual is, you know, knows everything, knows more about their topic than, than anybody else. Um, at that time is, is my, is the assumption, right? Like whatever their project was, I, I get I get that, but we can find lots of people that are experts in in those areas. The the PhD quote club, and I'm using Richard Fingers uh, for this, is is really just to me the the process of driving self learning and mm-hmm. being able to deal with. Um, uh, data collection that doesn't go right and justifying why, why we use the methods that we use and finding other methods and reaching outside of our field to look for a better way. And, and I don't, I, there are other ways to get that experience or to, to get that, um, you know, whatever uh, wow. skill set, but I don't, I, the, the the PhD designation gives you the, like, okay, you, you made it, you made it through this process. It doesn't mean that you're going to be good at your next job, right? Like it doesn't, doesn't need, mean that. And I apologize for my dog trying to talk on the podcast and shaking, um, no worries. but it, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't guarantee that, but it, it signifies a, that, that you went through some sort of a process that not. And, and it's not something, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure exactly where, um, where the PhD is like 20 years from now, I suspect it's at the exact same place as we are right now where we're having the same conversation. Cause this is probably a conversation that happened in the sixties as well. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't
1: know where a PhD is in 20 years. I don't know where, Uh, undergraduate and graduate education is in 20 years, because I I think we are potentially in the midst of a change. Um, I think hopefully we will still need uh, PhDs in 20 years. We won't. uh, That's not a job that you're going to easily outsource to robots. And I want to take a minute, too, and, and to not be too like PhD centric here. There are plenty of super smart people out there who don't have PhDs who are I mean, you know, I think people like Jenny Scott, right, who who has spent years in industry um, and then and then has spent the rest of her career in government and a really smart and really hardworking person, uh, certainly capable of, of earning a Ph.D. It's just that at the time that she left school, she had a master's degree and she just continued to work from there. Um, and I would say also, I have also continued to gain, have and continue to gain respect for people that have Different kinds of expertise, right? Journalists, people who can go out there and who can instantly make themselves familiar enough with a topic to write a news article that is that informs, right? And there are uh, there are wonderful examples of people that that do that kind of work uh, that are tremendously valuable. Um, and then again, people like Bill Marler, lawyers who come at it from a very very different perspective, who also have advanced education and who have a particular skill set that is very different but com- but complementary, perhaps, uh, skill set to the PhD. And so it's, yeah, I mean, yes, PhDs are useful, but doctors and lawyers and journalists are useful uh people with with all kinds of experience are useful um and it's not it's not just about like one one way to to make the world better it's it's about everybody that has different different expertise and and i think it's really important that we that we acknowledge that i've learned so much from having converse actually it just happened just uh, the other day when i was having conversations um, uh, when I visited General Mills, conversations with lawyers uh, there at General Mills, and they just bring a very different and unique uh, perspective that that I always learn from, and hopefully they're they're learning from um, from the PhDs in the room as well.
0: Yeah, and I, I, thanks for, I think saving me in, in <laughs> my ramble there because I, that, yeah, that, that's exactly not where, where I was trying uh, where I was trying to go. I, I think that. It is a um it, it it yeah it just it it ends up checking checking a box that that there are lots and lots of folks out there that haven't checked that box that could do my job <laughs> right like that's that, that i guess that's what i'm where where i'm trying to uh trying to go and and one of the yeah you know, one of the groups that that I work really closely with. Um, are folks like, um, environmental health specialists who, you know, typically don't, you know, go and continue on for, um, for a PhD, but are out there every day doing real food safety in, in restaurants and in hospitals and in schools that are, that are equally working through this process of how do I figure out where, what, you know, what might be out here that's making people sick. Um, and on that segue, you posted a f- like a link to something, and I'm I'm interested in in wh- how you came across this. But I read there was a Reddit um, Ask me anything a- uh, is that what AMA? Yep, uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, Post from health inspectors uh, that had like 1,200 comments uh, and and questions uh, for someone who. Uh, And we'll link to this in show notes, but um, the AMA is, um, I've worked in food safety in many capacities over a decade from processing plants to restaurants, to school cafeterias, to grocery stores, to gas stations, and anywhere else food is processed or sold. Every time I think I've seen it all, something new comes up and surprises me. I'm here to answer any questions you have about food safety or anything else food related. Uh, I need to remain somewhat anonymous, uh, so my current possession is position is jeopardized. But here's some proof that I'm certified in, in food safety. And there, you know, there's are some really, uh, it, you know, interesting uh, comments, um, on, you know, on this. So it's I, I don't I don't want to go through the you know the whole 1,230 comments, <laughs> but to link to it and just for for our listeners to peruse through this AMA it's it's pretty cool
1: yeah and this is uh this is not new information. This is from, uh, 2013 is when it started. And, and then it obviously it's continued to go on with, with a whole lot of comments It made it to the front page, I think of Reddit. And so, and this is something, you know, this is, uh, people are interested in this stuff, right? I mean, this is why the five second rule resonates. This is why, um, you know, gross disgusting cockroaches in restaurants resonates because people just care about this stuff. Cause we all, we all eat at restaurants and grocery stores and gas stations, right? Or most of us have buy foods from those locations. And, so it's, and I, you know, I know you you always ask me this and I really don't remember how, how this came across my, uh, my radar. Probably it was something from Twitter. Um, I think because I have a hard time of, you know, tracking those back. Um, although I think I may have found a way to kind of, Preserve the the Twitter link in a way that's that's easy and works into my workflow. But yeah, this is just an example of uh, of somebody out there who doesn't have a PhD who's doing good work and who gosh stepped up and did a did an Ask Me Anything on Reddit and and did a tremendous amount of education just just by virtue of of stepping up and said you know hey this is a thing that uh, this a thing that I'm gonna to 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 talk about and it's uh, and it's it's great. I mean again I didn't read the whole thing I'd read enough to know that wow this this is just a, this is just a cool thing that we might want to uh, we might want to point uh, people towards.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna, I'm just going to read one here. Sure. Um, that I that I thought was particularly awesome. And so someone uh, someone writes great AMA. What's a typical procedure for inspecting a fast food restaurant such as McDonald's or Burger King? And the the answer is is pretty awesome. It's you know, I really look at all inspections the same, whether it says McDonald's at the front door, or mom and pop. There are many things to focus on, but I typically will allow the layout of the kitchen to dictate where I go and when, so I don't miss anything. I usually follow the walls around in a pattern, zigzagging between prep tables and so on. I do have a method to my madness, and I inspect each area. I look for three main things. Sanitation. Is it clean? Temperature. Is it within the safe limits? And cross-contamination. Is it stored safely? Of course, there are other things that we look at, like labeling, et cetera, but that's how I approach food and equipment. While I am inspecting those items, I glance up often to observe employee behaviors. Are they handling food properly, wearing gloves when required, and washing hands when necessary? That's pretty much the gist of it while in the kitchen. It's like, I, I that, you know, th- this one stood out to me because I, it, it is the, it, if I was to explain to someone not in our world of food safety, um, you know, like the hockey parents that I hang out with every weekend about what a, a restaurant inspector does, this is how, like, I will just point them to this. It's like a very nice, succinct uh, uh, story. So, yeah. So thanks for linking to it because I got lost in this for about 45 minutes uh, earlier this week.
1: Oh awesome. Well, it's I'm I'm happy to help. Hey, um so something else that's been in the in the news uh recently that I think we should should talk about is a uh, a Slate article um which is entitled Actually Backpackers You Don't Need to Filter Your Stream Water. And this uh this was this came up again and again across uh, across my uh various feeds. And the bottom line is that according to uh uh this the person who wrote this article, um Oh, and let's see, let's, um, let me see if we can find, um, uh, yeah. So it says, um, uh, it's written by a guy named Ethan Link and it says, Ethan Link is a PhD candidate in biology at the university of Washington. His writing has appeared in Los Angeles review of books and the stranger. And I think my, uh, witty, uh, Twitter comment was, well, it's too bad. That he didn't have a PhD in food science or food microbiology, um, Risk assessment or risk communication, because this is this is really a this mixes this mixes various facts together in a way that really uh, that really I think does a tremendous disservice. I mean, and I, I get his point, right? Like. Um, Uh, you know, and here's a quote that says in claiming the average hiker needs a $99 microfilter pump to avoid illness and death companies far exceed the conclusions of a scant medical literature. And, and he's, he's got a valid point, right? Like, and I, and I know, I I know the other side of this. I know that, um, uh, I did, I don't do too much anymore, but I did do a lot of, uh, hiking and, and backpacking, uh, with the scouts. And what we teach the scouts is that you need to filter or, or otherwise treat that water, right? Either filter or boil that, that water. And, And the reason why we do that is um, not uh, because that every time you drink raw water, you get sick. And again, this is sort of picking on this. Uh, idiotic uh, raw water trend, right? Um but it's it's really making the point that it's not it's about it's about risk, right? And if and if ninety nine percent of the time the water is safe, well guess what? There are hundreds or thousands of people out there and you don't know without doing a test whether there's giardia in that water or not. And so uh the best thing to do is to be safe and to and to filter that water. And I just think that this guy's I mean like I get the point right I get the point that that you need to uh that this is just really selling gadgets to people who don't need gadgets but the bottom line is that if you're not going to use one of these filtration gadgets then you need to take a stove and you need to take a a a a a container and you need to boil that water before you drink it because otherwise you really can get sick and uh you know I saw so I saw this article make the rounds and mostly I think this was probably um something, like I said, that came from Twitter, maybe, maybe um, uh, Bazzacco (laughs) commenting on it, but, or, or maybe he reacted to my comment, but, but it's just, I think, I think this is irresponsible, right? Uh, I think that it is, it's, it's, again, it's all about risk management and it's about the level of risk out there. And we don't know the full perspective on the risk, but you know, that, that I don't need a seatbelt every time I drive my car, but I still put my seatbelt on every time I drive my car, right? Because it's about risk management. Anyway.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, and I, I think the um, the soundbite that I've been using over and over again um, in the last year or so is – it has to do with the, the math of, of risk and that, um, you know, from a food safety standpoint, we eat, you know, billions and billions of meals a year that don't make us sick, but we have millions and millions that do, right? Like that. So, so it's not, I mean, yeah, I, and I, I really thought, so just a couple things on this, on this article, um, some of his, uh, some of the justification that he gives are some older studies. Um, you know, so a a 1993 study looking at the incidence of Giardia infection, in gastrointestinal illness in a back in backcountry travelers in a high used area of California Sierra Nevada found only five point seven percent tested positive, you know, for giardia and none of whom exhibited symptoms. You know, at the time, I guess, of uh, of that testing, but that's like still that's a lot, right? Like almost six people out of a hundred um, had giardia, and you know whether it was from drinking water in back country or not. It's not really clear. Uh, but that's, that's pretty, that's high to me, right? Like that's, it's not one out of 10,000. It's, it's quite a few people. Um, so yeah, uh, I agree. It's, I think the, the other two things that, um, that, that I'll highlight here from, from his justification is there's no discussion of, um, of pathogenic E. coli. I mean, the, the entire conversation is about parasites, uh, or, um, you know, campylobacter, which, uh, there have been some, some stuff that we'll link to, um, I'll send you a, a link here in a second on campy in, uh, water streams in Canada being, you know, just being able to sample, um, streams and creeks and just finding lots and lots of other non Um, non parasite, uh, foodborne or waterborne pathogens. So it's, it's only, it's just a small little look and ultimately it's a risk management decision. Like, like you said
1: yeah and and again i i didn't dig into this but i am just now reading it um where he says a study in the popular back magazine backpacker found pathogens in a minority of sampled sites with the highest recording concentrations still so dilute that obtaining an infective dose would require consuming 7 liters of water i'm pretty sure without even reading the link uh, um that that is um uh uh not not correct because people don't understand uh infectious dose so yeah
0: <sighs> yeah right 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 um so so anyway um there was one oh 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 hey we did have some feedback that we missed because uh, um from uh someone oh, someone yes one of our friend who we can share all details freely yes from our internet friend uh chris stone who you can find him at sentient microbe on twitter um uh, Chris uh, writes to us. Enjoyed the recent show as ever. Thank you. The discussion on slow cookers for delayed cooking, as well as leaving stock out on stove, got me wondering. What do you think of a practice for cooking food and leaving it covered at room temperature for extended periods? For example, cooking a meal in a slow cooker, preparing stock in a stovetop pot the night before, then leaving it at room temperature overnight, and then portioning it, refrigerating it. Say, let's you know, up to twenty four hours later. If the cooking vessel remained unopened during cooking and standing, would that likely be quite low risk? Thanks for your thoughts, FST or Chris Stone. So, what do you think, Don?
1: Well, yeah. So I told Chris we discussed it on the podcast. So I'm glad that you that you caught it. Uh, I, I noticed too that I, that was one, not one that got, that got my red flag, but I, I, I did I did uh, flag it just now. Um, Uh, Yeah, so uh, clearly this is low risk for uh, vegetative microorganisms like staph and listeria, right? So um, if you cook it and you cover it, um, you know, common... So when I think of recontamination, I think of staph and listeria because they're staphs on people's hands and listeria is just in the environment. And so um, both staph and listeria would be killed by cooking. And so as long as you have cooked it and then kept it covered and not recontaminated it, those are not going to be a problem. Now... Uh, probably not low risk um, for spores, right? So, Bacillus cereus spores and Clostridium perfringens spores, and maybe even Clostridium botulinum spores are going to survive the cooking process. Not only are they going to survive the cooking process, but they are going to be triggered to germinate. And so the germinated spores make cells, cells make more cells, and then if you incubate that overnight, for sure you can get, um, depending on pH and water activity, of course, uh, you you can likely get concentrations of Bacillus cereus and Clostridium perfringens um, that are uh, high enough to cause illness, depending upon the nature of the food. um, If it's, again, uh, right We know rice is a problem um, with bacillus cereus. You could uh, uh, cook that rice, uh, cause the spores to germinate, The the germinated spores would make cells, the cells would make more cells, the cells would make toxin. They would make heat-stable toxin, and then even recooking that rice to make fried rice or something, um, that toxin would still be there. So, And then a per, same thing with perfringens. Um, uh, again, uh, could grow overnight in a stew. We know there are plenty of examples of things uh, that are held at room temperature uh, for various periods of time where Clostridium botulinum could also be a risk. Probably have to be longer than overnight um, for, for CBOT, but again, documented outbreaks with all three organisms under scenarios like this. So, so, uh, cooking the food and leaving it on the stove, uh, even though it's covered overnight, uh, not a best practice. Again, you might be able to do it because all this presupposes that there are spores are there to begin with and they might not be there to begin with. But, uh, but again, you don't know. Uh, and and again, they're going to be there at some frequency, whether it's one in a hundred or one in a thousand or one in 10, they're going to be there. So, yep.
0: Yeah. What about, um, what about making overnight, making, uh, oatmeal overnight in a jar? (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, tell me, tell me more, man. I, I've, I've started. So, you know, my typical breakfast is uh turkey bacon and eggs. Um, uh, at, at, but my wife has oatmeal in the house and I, um, have started making oatmeal for breakfast. Uh, it's a surprisingly low calorie, uh, even if you throw a bunch of nuts and chocolate, uh, or brown sugar on top. So I've been having more oatmeal for breakfast, uh, but I do not make it in the refrigerator overnight. So, so tell me more about so, this.
0: Okay. So the link I just sent you is for one in the refrigerator. Um, but I had a friend ask me about doing this, not in the refrigerator cause they don't like cold oatmeal. So no kidding. I, yeah, I
1: don't like that. Sounds disgusting. A cold pizza. I'm on board. A cold oatmeal.
0: Not so much. Right, right. So there, so there are some some stuff on the on the Pinterest um, mm-hmm. on how to make overnight oats in a jar. And so, uh, you know, take your rolled oats. Um, you know, put this is uh, step one. Fill the glass as much as you think you'll be able to eat the next morning, um, and then add a bunch of other things into it, like maybe some yogurt and maybe almost like an oatmeal. Parfait, um, and uh, yeah. So I had a, I had a friend a while ago send me this and say, "What do you think about? Could I do this?" But but just like um, you know, add add all these things together and just leave it, and so it's not you know cold um, overnight. Uh, I said no. I, I mean, for all the same same sort of reasons as what you um, what you talked about. I didn't tell them no, don't do it. I just told them about risks, and now we're adding. A bunch, we're changing the water activity. Well, with, with oats, I would also worry about Bacillus cereus um, in the same way. And yep. uh, just, you know, this it seems like a bad idea to me.
1: Yep. Uh, yeah. And so now this is, uh, let's see. So, um, uh, and then you're filling it up. Oats are well covered. Uh, use different liquids, toppings. All right. And then, but you don't heat it
0: you do right? not heat it
1: yeah so that may actually well it's good and bad right if you don't heat it then any vegetative pathogens are not destroyed but my understanding and again we and it's in the the our knowledge about germination of spores is is pretty limited surprisingly um we do know that heat is required to stimulate germination. We also know germination can be triggered by having certain um, uh, um, amino acids in the environment. We don't know a whole heck of a lot about germination under those conditions. And so it's possible that if you, I mean, it would be an interesting experiment to take bacillus cereus spores, to put them into oatmeal um, in a way that didn't change the water activity terribly much, let them stabilize for a few days and then add water and then see what would happen if you stored it overnight um at room temperature you may not get spore germination because you don't have heat mm. um which triggers that germination but uh, that's a that's an awfully risky thing to be counting on so i would say um Uh, in the refrigerator, it's probably fine. Um, well again, unless the, but again, we don't, we don't typically, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a theoretical risk there. Again, oats probably don't have vegetative pathogens. If they did have vegetative pathogens, they'd be destroyed by heating. But if you made them cold, you wouldn't. But again, I think that's a, probably a low, you know, low event. Um, I guess my, my recommendation is best choice, hot oatmeal in the morning with, with hot water. Okay. Best choice. Next best choice, refrigerated, uh, refrigerator oatmeal, third best choice, uh, overnight at room temperature oatmeal. And I don't, I really don't have a good sense of how the risk changes for those different things. And again, the main, the main thing is uncertainty about germination of spores without the application of heat. And that would require probably some Google scholar searching to try to figure out what we know about
0: that. Boom. There you go. Boom. Nice, uh, nice, nice job. And, uh, Chris, hopefully we, uh, we answered your answers your question.
1: <laughs> well, we answered Chris's question for sure. I don't yes. think we settled the oatmeal question. No,
0: we didn't answer. Yeah. and I, I, my, that was one where I sort of copped it and said, uh, ah, just, yeah, it's risky. Um, so I've got, there's one more, one more thing, um, th- that I want to touch on before we, uh, before we uh, finish off our episode here and it's uh something that you that you tweeted at me uh the other day from uh Aaron Monkey, Monkey, 10 super sassy podcasting tips. <laughs> yes. Uh so, super sassy, Ben. Super sassy. That's Not how we sassy,
1: super sassy.
0: Super sassy, that's how we roll. Uh and so this is uh you know just so you know some sharing some stuff on the internet uh about what what's good about podcasting, wh- how to make a good podcast. Number 1, Unless you and your co-host are major celebrities, no one wants to hear 10 minutes of off-topic banter before you get to the actual topic. I, Don, I don't know so, about he, that.
1: I, I am absolutely sure that you and I are major celebrities, so, so Aaron can go stuff it.
0: <laughs> now, okay. Well, no, but I guess we fit number one then because yeah. we are major celebrities.
1: Major celebrities. major Legend, the, legends, legends in our own minds.
0: Celebrities yeah. all the way down. <laughs> Uh, so, so you know, so here, so
1: here's the thing. Um, except for Jack's age, we know we know Jack does not like the banter. Okay, Jack's on record as being against the banter. Um, uh, write in to us, friends and listeners. Uh, uh, thumbs up, thumbs down on the banter. Um, also, um, realize that no matter what you say, we're we don't care. Okay, so first of all, we don't care, and second of all, we, we we'd like to hear what you have to say.
0: Exactly. Yeah, we do. We we're interested in it. We're just we're probably just gonna do the same thing though. <laughs> um we we had just on this we actually had a really nice uh twitter comment that you got tagged in uh someone um responded to an i am, I am science communication uh i am com sci com uh twitter question of what are some of your favorite science podcasts more importantly what makes them so good and one of our listeners uh, uh, Victoria Martinez, said, "I love food safety talk. I like that they aren 't trying to do the mass appeal thing they 're just digging into the questions they're interested in. feels more like a genuine look at science than many podcasts, which is like bang on that's it, it is what we 're trying to do uh, and uh ma- you know mass appeal it, it's just uh we you we, as you said, we would do it if we if no one else listened Um well,
1: and- and, and let, me, let me also add, um, so I gave my last lecture in our undergraduate uh, food micro class, and I did, I did promote the podcast, um, but I asked them, so I did the typical questions that we do for these things. I said, how many of you have ever heard of a podcast? Most hands went up. How many of you ever listened to a podcast? Most hands went up. How many of you regularly listen to a, would consider yourself a regular podcast listener? And a handful of hands go up. And then I said, anybody listen to my podcast? And one young lady whose name I didn't, I didn't get, and I apologize, um, said, yes, I listen. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. Yay. Thank they,
0: you for listening. And did you say so. you don't have to come to class anymore?
1: well <laughs> yeah. I said you don't have to listen to any of my my lectures anymore because ah it's my last lecture today <laughs> yeah. but uh but I was just like and I and I apologize for not following up uh, uh, with you uh thank you for listening and and please do drop me a line I would love to know that about the who the Rutgers undergrad is that listen not to be creepy or anything uh, but I would love to know that you listen to my podcast so thank you thank you for listening thank you for saying so I think she was kind of embarrassed to admit it um in class but anyway it, w- it was fun to do the thing and and maybe maybe we got like, uh, more listeners because of it, but, but I wouldn't count on it.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Um, a couple other tips from this, uh, top 10, uh, don't be a slime ball on social media. I'm pretty sure we're not, we don't do this. Stop following all the fans of the podcast you're copying, uh, in hopes they'll follow you back. We don't really have, uh, there's no, no other path out there.
1: I don't, and I don't follow anybody with the expectation they're going to follow me back. I follow people that I'm interested in. And I will sometimes – if someone is following me and they say something back to me that is like helpful or instructive or funny and I see they follow me and I don't follow them, I will follow them because why not, right? Um, But I don't follow people so they'll follow me back. That's just stupid. Right, right, yeah. And 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 I do jump into conversations on Twitter with people that I don't know. But I don't make an elevator pitch, and I sure as hell don't – I mean I will give my show link to people that that I think might be interested in it. But I, I mean for the most part, I think it's in the – I think it's in my Twitter bio. And I mean I, I will tweet out when we have a new episode, and I'll put that on Facebook, and I'll even put that on LinkedIn because I think that's the thing that LinkedIn is most useful for.
0: <laughs> but anyway. Right, yeah. right. Um, couple other things here you know uh, it might take a bunch of episodes before you start seeing growth and you know we're now at episode 145 uh, I think it is today and so we we just keep going yep, uh, yep. yeah um, uh, learn listen to learn and not copy so I, you know, I think you and I both listen to a lot of podcasts and and we don't copy those but there are good things that we've learned uh, from them and I think for us it's more about just figuring out what the when one person is talking and the other person isn't and just getting a sense of what those topics are that we're both interested in. Um, and then a, a few other tips on here on uh, release schedules, which I think really helped us on speaking of re- release schedules. Make one, commit to it, and execute without fail. Uh, you know, So that's one so, of the things we do now. We, yeah, we
1: we do because we commit to doing it. About every two weeks, and we sometimes uh, commit to it. So now, and I, you know, I, I mean, I get that. Like, I get that a release schedule would be good, but like, you and I have a job, like a day job that we have to do. And I'm, I can't commit to a release schedule. And I, I'm sorry about
0: that. Uh, but, you know, well, and, but I, but I do think we, so on that, I think we do have a release schedule, just maybe not in the way that, um, that Aaron's talking about, where every couple of weeks we're going to have a new show.
1: It's, yeah, it's about not, about every couple of weeks. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's not like every Tuesday or every fifth Tuesday. But um, you know, there was a time there eighteen months ago where it was like, wow, well, we we've got a backlog, and there's a month when we're not you know, releasing a show. So I think that that has helped us to keep things fresh. Um, and with that, um, I didn't realize that it was 11 o'clock, and I do have a hard out. Ooh. So I think that's a show, and my dog appears to want to go outside. <laughs> Let's talk about hard outs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of hard outs, he's uh, whining at the door here. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we should, uh, we should call that a show. All right. All right. Bye, Don. Bye, Ben. Sorry, I didn't even. I got I just oh. got totally tied up and talking. Oh well, we we started late,
1: and then there was a break in the middle, so it's uh, you know, but but yeah, it's uh, we started we started late, and and
0: yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Um, how does uh, two weeks today sound?
1: Uh fantastic.
0: What if we did? What if we did nine o'clock again? Uh, that would be fine. Okay, let's do that. February twenty first, nine a.m. T one, four, six. Awesome. Okay, and I have this one. You do. Perfect. Uh I gotta go. <laughs> All right. We'll okay. talk to you later. Bye. Bye.